Not every story in the Bible is a true allegory. Now, uh, an allegory is just a simple story or a simple statement that has a much uh, deeper, a much more profound symbolical meaning. And there are allegories in the Bible. In fact, Paul talks about one in particular in Galatians 4 and verse 24. But while not every story is an actual allegory, there are a lot of stories that do illustrate spiritual principles or spiritual truth. Paul said, for example, in Romans 15 and verse 4, For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, he adds, after having talked about some of the events in the life of Moses, he said, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Well, there's a story like that that I want to study with you tonight for a little while. It's a story about a king who raises an uh, incapable and an undeserving man from a, a, a barren position and places him at a bountiful table. And really, this story is a compelling portrait of how the grace of God works in the world today to allow sinners to be saved from their sin. <clears throat> there are a lot of great people who are mentioned in the Bible, both uh, men and women, great in their uh, achievements, great in their character, but you wouldn't really rate them as great personalities. In fact, uh, in my judgment, there's uh, very few that you'd rate as really great personalities. In the New Testament, you'd obviously have the Apostle Peter, you'd have the Apostle Paul. In the Old Testament, I think you'd have to include Joseph and uh, David. <clears throat> David was one of the greatest men who ever lived. David was a uh, he was a, uh, a great poet. You know, uh, you think about the great poets of history and could very well be that you have your favorite poet. Did you know that it's very possible that David was the greatest poet who ever lived? Uh, he was a great musician. He was the sweet singer of Israel. And I think about these singers and these musicians today that uh, are heartthrobs for millions of fans all over the world. It could very well be that David was the greatest musician of his time. He was a, a great warrior. He was a man, really, of unparalleled military genius. He was a great king. In fact, the greatest king, really, that Israel ever knew. He was a, a great administrator. He was a great planner. He was a great uh, prophet. But, you know, I think uh, in back of all of that was his fascinating personality. David had uh, sort of a charismatic personality that seemed to just compel those who knew him to admire him. All of Israel loved David. Uh, King Saul loved him when he wasn't insane with jealousy. Saul's son, Jonathan, loved him. David's own men loved him. But most importantly, the Lord loved him. Uh, he had uh, this, as I said, this uh, personality that just seemed to compel those who knew him to admire him. We know more about David really than any other character in the Bible with the exception of our Lord. His biography is by far the longest. By comparison, the story of Abraham is told in 14 chapters. The story of Jacob is told in 11 chapters. But there are 62 chapters that tell us the story of David. And we know about him not only from these narratives, but also from his writings in the Psalms. Well, obviously, <clears throat> the turning point in David's career came with the killing of the great giant uh, Goliath. You know, uh, it wasn't long after he killed Goliath that he was appointed to a post in King Saul's standing force. He was sent out from time to time on raids against the enemy. 
and David's courage and David's brilliance for military engagement was something that caused him to grow in favor in the eyes of King Saul every day. He was well on his way to fame and fortune. Well, it was at this point that David befriended uh, King Saul's son, Jonathan. And uh, we know about great friendships in history. You know, you, you, you think about some of the friendships in history, you hear one name, you just automatically associate the other name. I doubt very seriously if there's ever been a greater friendship than the friendship between David and Jonathan. And what made this such a great friendship is that it was founded really upon the proper basis. And that uh, basis or that foundation was the fact that both of these men were men of great piety. And by that I mean both of these men truly loved God. They truly uh, wanted to be pleasing to God. They had a great reverence for God. And that, uh, common bond, that, that, that common quality between these two men became the foundation for this great friendship. <clears throat> you know, the Bible tells us that well, I think that we can, can infer uh, from the story of David, you know, well, uh, undoubtedly that Jonathan was there on that occasion when David slew the great Philistine giant Goliath. But later when he was, uh, when David was introduced into uh, King Saul's court and began to be introduced around everybody, there was not a trace of jealousy in the heart of Jonathan. In fact, Jonathan was just as in awe of what David had done, and he was just as enamored with his personality as was all of Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jonathan took off his own war cloak and placed it around the shoulders of David. He gave David his own bow. Now, Jonathan was a great archer, and he gave David his own bow, gave him his own, uh, his own sword, uh, took off his expensive belt and placed that around David's waist. Now, this was unheard of. Jonathan was the crown prince. He was next in line to be the king of Israel, succeeding his own father, King Saul. And yet, he put his attire, the attire of the crown prince, on David as though he felt David was more deserving to succeed his own father. Later, they entered into a covenant of friendship, according to 1 Samuel, the 20th chapter. <clears throat> you know what I think about when I think about this bond that they made? When I was a kid, I used to watch a program on television called Broken Era. And it was about the great Apache chief, uh, Cochise. And uh, I'll never forget on one episode, uh, he and uh, the fellow down at the trading post, Tom Poston, uh, that might have been his real name. Anyhow, the guy down at the trading post, uh, they became blood brothers. And uh, what they did, you know, we shudder to think about this today, but what they did was they cut themselves on their uh, wrists, respectively, then they reached out and clasped each other by the forearm with their hand, and they rubbed their bloody wrists together. And, uh, in, and it is said that they became blood brothers. They entered into a covenant of, of brotherhood sealed by their own blood. And uh, that uh, blood brother covenant, you know, they, they pledged loyalty to each other as though they were brothers for the rest of their lives. Well, really, in essence, that's what David and Jonathan did. They pledged this loyalty to each other. In fact, in 1 Samuel 20, beginning at verse 14, uh, Jonathan said to David, he said, uh, I pray the Lord will bless you as he used to bless my father, King Saul. He said, now one day the Lord is going to wipe out all of your enemies. He said, if I'm still alive then, I just ask that you be as kind to me as the Lord has been. But he said, if I'm dead, I ask that you be kind to my family. 
What David agreed with that? They pledged that to each other. And it wasn't long after that that David got, uh, Jonathan rather, got an opportunity to demonstrate his loyalty to David. You know, in 1 Samuel 18, verses 7 through 9, the scripture says that uh, David had returned back uh, home from a, a very successful battle. And upon entering into the kingdom, some of the young girls in the kingdom began to serenade him with a song that they had composed about him. And they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul heard it, and it angered him. And he thought to himself, now, this boy's popularity is getting out of hand. I mean, they're, they're writing songs about him now and singing that I've slain my thousands, but that he's slain his ten thousands. And why, well, he's got everything but the kingdom. And you know, the Bible says that Saul began to look at him at that point with a jealous suspicion. That uh, jealousy soon turned into hatred. Saul tried to kill David on numerous occasions. He chased him out of the country. He pursued him into the wilderness. He gave his wife to another man and uh, falsely accused him of treachery and treason. And all the while, David refused to strike back. In fact, on one occasion, Saul lay upon the ground asleep, his massive spear sticking in the ground beside him. All David had to do was walk up there and, and to pull that uh, spear out of the ground and thrust it through Saul's heart, and he would have been rid of his archenemy, but he wouldn't do it. Even at the urging of his men, he wouldn't do it. He said, I'm not going to slay the anointed of God. He said, God will take care of King Saul. Well, it was at this point that Jonathan really demonstrated his loyalty to David, even over his own father, King Saul. David was on the run. He was hiding out in the wilderness. He knew that Saul and his men were trying to locate him so they could kill him. And somehow Jonathan found him and he told him about a, a plot that his father had that very well could have been a plot to have David killed. And on that occasion, they they repledged their loyalty and their love for each other. And then uh, Jonathan departed. Well, it wasn't long after that until David received word that King Saul, Jonathan, and Jonathan's brothers were all killed in battle. But instead of rejoicing that he was rid of his archenemy and that he now would be the king of Israel, the Bible says that David grieved over the news of the death of King Saul. And he especially grieved over the news of the death of his beloved friend, Jonathan. In 2 Samuel 1, verses 25 and 26, uh, David uh, expresses in a psalm the great love that he and Jonathan had for each other. Well, David became the king then. He succeeded King Saul. This took a little time, you know, a few years, but nevertheless, he ascended to the throne. And it was pretty much the custom back in that time when a king had been toppled and a new king replaced him, they would round up the surviving family members of the former king and execute them so that they couldn't rise up at a later date and challenge for the throne. Sure enough, one day, David called in a former servant of King Saul's and asked him, does King Saul have any surviving family members? But it wasn't for the purpose of executing them it was for the purpose of extending them a kindness. Now notice in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1, And David said, 
Is there yet any that is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's not uncommon, really, for one person to show kindness to another person for the sake of somebody else. I've got a hunch that all of us here tonight, uh, of any uh, age at all, any maturity at all, uh, probably have been extended kindness. We've uh, maybe been given an opportunity, not because of what we've done, but uh, maybe because they knew our folks and they uh, respected our folks and had a fondness for them, or maybe an older brother or an older sister. And because they knew them and had such a high regard for them, they were willing to give us a break, extend to us an opportunity. Could you imagine, we'll say, uh, youngster about 12 years old coming to your house and ringing the doorbell we'll say about 6 37 o'clock some night and you go to the front door and open the door and there stands this strange young man and he looks up at you with big eyes and says can i come in and spend the night tonight how would you reply to that you'd probably think well <laughs> well who are you anyway and uh, well, what are you doing over here at my house asking to spend the night do your folks know what you're doing and you'd be reluctant to let him in but suppose that same young man came home with your son and your son came in and he said hey dad would it be okay if johnny spends the night with us tonight uh, tonight's friday night and uh, his folks said be okay with them well sure hey come on in uh have dinner with us make yourself the home and and you extend this kindness to him not because of what he's done but you do it for your son's sake and that's exactly the case with Jonathan and David. David was looking for an opportunity to extend the kindness to the family of King Saul and Jonathan for Jonathan's sake. And that's exactly how it works in uh, the world today in our obtaining forgiveness of God. Listen, in Ephesians 4 and verse 32, Paul said, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. In 1 John 2 and verse 12, John adds, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. We studied earlier in the week that in Hebrews, the ninth chapter, we're told that Jesus became the mediator of a new covenant. Now, the conditions of entering into that covenant agreement are made very clear. We're to hear the word of God taught, Romans 10 and verse 14. We're to believe it, Romans 1 and verse 16. We're to repent of our sins, Acts 17, verse 30. We're to confess the name of Jesus before others, according to Matthew 10 and verse 32. And then we're to be baptized in water for the remission of sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. Now, friends, when we comply genuinely with these conditions, we enter into a covenant agreement with God in Jesus Christ. And God, for Christ's sake, forgives us of our sins. He adopts us into the family. And we become the recipient of all spiritual blessings. Now then notice with me in verses 2 through 6 of our text, the need of every sinner. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba, and when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? 
And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, thy servant. Now David asked this uh, former servant of King Saul, he says, Does King Saul have any surviving family members? And the servant said, yes, he does. He has a grandson. He said, in fact, it's Jonathan's son. And he said, uh, you know, he's, he's lame on both his feet. And uh, he lives over in Lodibar. And his name is Mephibosheth. I had to work on that. That's hard for me to say. Uh, I'd like to hear you say it four times real fast. It's kind of like trying to say Rubber baby buggy bumpers four times real fast. You know, I get uh, I, I love these uh, names from the Bible, especially those Old Testament names, because every one of them have uh, has significance. Uh, the fact is that uh, God changed uh, Abram's name to Abraham. The name Abraham means father of many nations. A very appropriate name for the patriarchal father. You'll remember that when God told uh, Abraham, uh, aged Abraham and barren Sarah that they were going to have a child, Sarah laughed. And later when the child was born, they named him Isaac, which means laughter. I mentioned uh, Jacob and Rachel. They had a little boy, and Rachel died in childbirth. And they named the little boy Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. And I always thought that was so unfortunate to have a name that would remind you every time you heard it, that it was your birth that was responsible for the death of your mother. Uh, fortunately, Jacob later changed the name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. Uh, uh, Jesus added the name Peter to, the, uh, to Simon, the name Peter, which means a rock. So all of these names have significance. And uh, I, I just really honestly never cease to be amazed at some of the names that people tag their children with. Did you know that there was a governor I'm not making this up. There was a governor of the state of Texas. Uh, he was governor around 1900. The Honorable James A. Hogg, H-O-G-G, -G, had a bunch of boys. And then he and his wife had a little girl, and they named her Ima. Ima Hogg. You know, anybody who would do that to a child ought to be horsewhipped at least. And uh, it makes me thankful that my family is stuck with the old basic traditional American names like Reaford and Hootie. This name Mephibosheth is really interesting to me, though, because it, li it literally means the dispeller of shame. The dispeller of shame. But uh, what is ironic is that he was not one who was going to be dispelling shame. He was the object of shame. I mean, he was living in exile and constant fear. He knew that it was the custom for the, uh, the uh, succeeding uh, king to round up the family members of the former king and kill them all. And he was in, in exile. He was uh, uh, terrified that they were going to find him and execute him. And can you imagine what he thought when uh, King David's men rode up before the house where he was hiding and said, uh, King David wants to see you, boy. You suppose he thought, all right, I got an invitation to the king's palace. No. He was thinking, I'm a dead man. They took him back over to the palace of King David. He went in before him, terrified, 
prostrated himself on the floor face down and said, I am your servant. You know what David's first words were to him? Don't be afraid. That illustrates, though, the, what's in the heart of the sinner. The one who knows he's separated from God, he's afraid. And he doesn't want to confront the king. He's like uh, Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and verse 8. He wants to hide from God. That's a perfect portrait of, of the alien sinner who's separated from God. He's terrified. Furthermore, he was destitute. He lived in Lodibar. The name Lodibar means a barren land. And that again... Uh, illustrates uh, the condition of uh, the rebellious. In Psalm 68 and verse 6, David says that the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Away from God, the sinner is lodging in the house of poverty. Isaiah 44, verse 20, Luke 15, and verse 16. And furthermore, he was helpless. He was lame on both his feet. Now, the way this happened a few years before, he was just a, a, a very small child. When the word got back to the palace that his grandfather King Saul and that his father Jonathan and his uncles had been killed in battle, uh, they knew that uh, very probably the men uh, of the, the succeeding king would be swooping down upon them at any moment looking for surviving family members. And so with that in mind, a nurse ran and scooped him up in her arms and she began to flee with him from the palace. And as she did, she dropped him and it damaged both his feet. And he was crippled for the rest of his life. Most families have uh, similar physical characteristics. You know, you can look at a lot of families and you can kind of tell that they're kin folks. I always thought the Kennedy brothers looked a lot alike. And uh, I think the Bush family have, uh, I think members in that family have similar physical characteristics. I have a brother that's just two years older than I. And there are a lot of people who think we look alike. In fact, uh, we had a friend in college years ago who thought we were the same person uh, for one semester until he saw us in the student union together one day. And that explained a lot. You know, Sometimes he'd say something to one of us that was reference to what he had said to the other one. He thought he was talking to the same person for a whole semester. I, I don't really see that we look all that much alike, but everybody says we do. But anyhow, uh, you know, you would expect that that was the case in Bible times as well. And I'll tell you, King Saul was an impressive physical specimen. I mentioned the other evening that the Bible talks about four men that were built well and handsome. And one of them was King Saul. King Saul was tall and he was powerful and he cut a, an impressive uh, figure as far as uh, people were concerned. And you know, Samuel the prophet warned uh, the people of Israel Really, that that's what they were looking at when they decided to select him as their king. But he said that the Lord looks upon the heart. So he was an impressive man. His son Jonathan was a great athlete. He was a great archer. Probably the greatest archer of his time. And uh, you would expect the same of Jonathan's son Mephibosheth. But uh, to learn that that was not only not the case, but that he was, that he was crippled. You know, you could just hear King David saying, you mean this boy can't even walk? I mean, what service can he provide? He has no wealth, no education, no, no training, and who knows what he looks like. And where is he living? Lodibar? David didn't say any such thing. For Jonathan's sake, now he didn't say, well, where is this crippled boy? Where is this uh, lame kid? No, 
For Jonathan's sake, he just simply says, where is he? Another translation says, where is this son? And that's significant because up, up to this point in the narrative, that's the first time that Mephibosheth's name has been mentioned and not immediately followed by his affliction. A lot of people know what it's like to have a stigma. And, uh, you know, everywhere you go, every time your name is mentioned, your stigma immediately follows. Old uh, so-and-so the other day, you know, you know he's divorced. Or uh, got a letter from old, uh, what's his uh, face? You, you know, he's an alcoholic. Or uh, saw uh, so-and-so downtown. It, you know, it just seems like she can't keep a job. It's like a pesky little brother, a pesky little sister. Everywhere you go, uh, your past seems to follow. But friends, I want you to know tonight that when you enter into a covenant relationship with God, this covenant that was sealed and ratified by the shed blood of Christ, beginning at that point, God does not throw up your past to you. He's not going to remind you of your moral frailties or your spiritual failings, but from that point, you simply become his child. 1 John 3 and verse 1, John said, Beloved, now are we the sons or the children of God. Well, David told uh, Mephibosheth, he said, uh, he said, now don't be afraid. He said, I'm going to restore to you all of your grandfather King Saul's lands. I'm going to give you back all of his crops. I'm going to give you all of his servants. And he said, I want you to sit at my table as though you're my own son for the rest of your life. Mephibosheth was absolutely overwhelmed. And according to verse 8, he said to David, but... I am but a dead dog. Now, that is obviously a derisive description, but it may be more derogatory than you think. You know, in our culture today, dogs are family pets. They become like members of the family. But that's not the way it was in Israel. Dogs were scavengers, and they roamed in packs, and they ate dead carcasses in the streets, and therefore they were unclean. They were despised. They were repulsive. Uh, they were disgusting. For him to have called himself a dog would have been bad. But to have said a dead dog, uh, touching anything dead was unclean under the law of Moses. So that would be like, a, you know, it'd be like our saying, look, man, uh, you know, I don't have any intrinsic value. Why are you doing this? I I'm, like a, I'm like a roadkill skunk or I'm like a crushed cockroach. I don't have any value. Why are you doing this? And David was very quick to point out that he was doing this for his father, Jonathan's sake. Now the fact that he was brought from where he was in exile over to the king's palace and went in there and humbled himself before King David, that didn't put David in his debt. David didn't owe him anything. But it was for Jonathan's sake. And friends, by the same token, when we respond to the invitation and we comply with these conditions, we don't put God in our debt. God doesn't owe us anything. But for Christ's sake, he forgives us. He adopts us into the family. And we become the recipient of all spiritual blessings. In swift succession, David returned to Mephibosheth, all of his grandfather's lands and crops and servants. And four times he tells Mephibosheth, I want you to sit at my table. Now I'll tell you, just to have King Saul's land, his servants, his crops and all that, that would be prestigious. 
But all of that together doesn't even begin to compare with the prestige of sitting at the king's table. I hope you can picture this in your minds tonight. Could you imagine the dinner bell sounding in the palace of King David? David comes in, takes his seat at the head of the table. Now, we're not talking about just anybody. We're talking about the greatest poet who ever lived. The sweet singer of Israel. We're talking about the most brilliant military strategist who ever engaged in conflict. The greatest king that Israel ever knew. A great builder, a great planner, the most charismatic personality in the world. Takes his seat at the head of the table. Then suppose his son Amnon, cunning, crafty Amnon, comes down, sits down at his father's left. And then Tamar. Charming, strikingly beautiful, comes in and sits down by her brother. And then get this, a door opens over here, and out of the study steps Solomon. Brilliant, uh, precocious, a little distracted, comes out of the study and uh, finds his seat at the table. And then uh, Absalom. Absalom is one of the four that the Bible says was built well and handsome. He had hair as black as a raven's wing. He had his father's charismatic personality. He could win people over. He came in and took his seat at the table. And suppose on this occasion that David invited Joab. Now Joab was his right-hand man. He was a fearless warrior. He was the commander of his troops. And uh, suppose he came in and Bronze and muscular, he sat down near the king. Now you talk about a gathering of royal personalities. And they sit there and wait patiently. And pretty soon they begin to hear the, the shuffling of feet. And they hear the clumping of crutches echoing down the hall. As Mephibosheth awkwardly and slowly makes his way into the dining room. And falls in his seat. And when he looks up and surveys this gathering of royal personalities. I ask you tonight. Do you think he understood what it meant to have a kindness done him for the sake of somebody else? And can you see ourselves in that picture? Can you see that we were crippled by sin? That we were living in spiritual exile in that uh, barren land of Lodibar. But thanks to the covenant made possible by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God for Christ's sake forgives us. Adopts us into the family. And allows us to sit at the king's table. I want to read you just a partial list of what is found at the king's table. Romans 8 and verse 1, if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Romans 7 and verse 6, you are delivered from the law of Moses. In Ephesians 2 and verse 13, you are near God. Colossians 1 and verse 13, you're delivered from the power of evil and a member of his kingdom. Romans 5, you're justified. Hebrews 10 and verse 14, you are perfect in Christ. 
Romans 8 and verse 15, you've been adopted. Ephesians 2 and verse 18, you have access to God at any moment. 1 Peter 2 and verse 5, you're a part of his priesthood. Hebrews 13 and verse 5, you'll never be abandoned. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 4, you have an imperishable inheritance. Further, you are a partner with Christ in life. Colossians 3 and verse 4, in privilege. Ephesians 2 and verse 6, in suffering. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12, and in service. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. You are a member of his body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, a branch in the vine, John 15, verse 5, a stone in the building, Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1, a bride for the groom, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and a priest in the new generation, 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, and get this, in Christ, you become the recipient of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly world, Ephesians 1 and verse 3. What do you suppose uh, would have been the result if after David made this, uh, this incredible charitable gesture to Mephibosheth, if he had, he had thought about it for a minute and, and told King David, you know, uh, sir, uh, sir, your honor, your lordship, uh, this, just, this is just unbelievable. Now, I, I was brought here thinking that I was going to be executed. And here you are, you're treating me as though I'm your own son. And uh, believe me, I'm grateful and thank you, but no thanks. I believe I'm just going to go back over there to Lodibar and live in exile and scratch out as meager an existence as I possibly can. Well, you'd think he'd be insane. Friends, that is no more outrageous than the multitudes of people today who knowingly and deliberately reject God's overtures of kindness that he extends us for Christ's sake. Could it be tonight that you're here and you have been extended the invitation to become a child of God and to sit at the king's table, but until now you've rejected it. If that's the case, we urge you to seize the opportunity while it is yours. If you're not a Christian, become one tonight. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess his name, and be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Friends, if you'll do that, then by virtue of the blood of Christ, you enter into a covenant relationship with God, and God, for Christ's sake, will forgive you. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.